I wonder what it is that tempts you most fiercely to step outside of the way of Jesus and to step into some other way. Lenten, Lent, I suppose, is a season for hard questions. I put that hard question before you. What is it that most fiercely tempts you to lay aside your integrity, your priorities, so that you begin to settle for less than the best version of what God created you to be? What does temptation look like in your life right now? Temptation. We heard the story moments ago, Jesus is in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And if you were part of worship last week, you heard me say that whenever the Bible introduces a mountain to the narrative, pay attention because significant things tend to happen on biblical mountains, the same could be said of biblical wilderness. The wilderness is where the Israelites spent 40 years. Jacob wrestled with God in the wilderness. John the Baptist offered his ministry of baptism in the wilderness. And people left the city and made their way into the wilderness simply to hear Jesus preach and experience his ministry of healing. It's as though wilderness is a set-apart place in the biblical narrative a place of encounter, a place of fresh perspective. And this is where Jesus begins his ministry, in the wilderness. And we're told a couple of specific things about Jesus' experience in the wilderness. We're told that he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. Not a coincidence. Perhaps it was Jesus' way of honoring the 40 years in the wilderness that his ancestors had experienced. And then we are told that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Perhaps that was Jesus' way of reminding himself at the beginning of his ministry that he was hungrier for God than he was even for biological nourishment. And as close as the Holy Spirit was to Jesus during that period of time in the wilderness, the devil was just as close. Now I'll pause to acknowledge that I do not know what your personal theology is related to the devil, and I make no presupposition that way. It may be that you are a mystic, and you look upon the devil as an anthropomorphic personification of evil, a force in the world. Or it might be that you are a bit more literary in your interpretation of the devil. And you see the devil as a metaphorical representation of all that stands against the heart of God and the way of God. Either way, wherever you locate yourself in that system of theology, my encouragement is to stay engaged with the text because I would argue that Jesus' encounter with the devil in this wilderness matters. It matters. And you will notice that in this moment, the devil does not attempt to possess Jesus demonically. There are no spinning heads. There is no biologically relocated pea soup. There is nothing like that. <laughs> Nor does the devil attempt to cause Jesus physical harm. The devil does what the devil always does. He lies. And that's powerful enough, isn't it? 
If you've ever been tempted to buy into a false story about yourself or someone else, lying is enough. There's power in distorting the truth. And through his lies, the devil attempts to get Jesus to buy into a few false stories by placing before him some alternative paths that Jesus might consider following. And this morning, I'm simply inviting you to pay close attention to these alternative paths with which the devil tempts Jesus because they are as weighty as they are timeless. First comes that temptation to reduce the kingdom of God. To fast food. So that life becomes little more than an extended effort to satisfy a variety of human appetites. Turn that stone into a loaf of bread, the tempter says to Jesus in the midst of his hunger. Turn that stone to a loaf of bread. Make it about your appetites, Jesus. Let your appetites govern your priority, because in case you haven't heard, you are what you eat. And what is Jesus' response? No. No, one does not live by bread alone, which is to say sometimes a faithfulness to God, sometimes a faithfulness to God will mean saying no to certain appetites so that deeper hungers can be felt, can, so that deeper hungers can be fed. And even as I say that, I'm struggling to picture what that might look like in the life of contemporary discipleship. What might it look like for us? to say no to certain appetites so that deeper hungers can be fed. I read an article written by a man who recently made the decision to refrain from reading work-related emails during the evening throughout the Lenten season. He described it as a temporary fast from electronic communication related to work. And obviously, he had the kind of work and the kind of permission, uh, position that would permit him to make that sort of decision. I realize that that's not going to be the case for many of you. So please do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying, hey, Christ Church, here's what you have to do during Lent. That might not make sense for you. I get that. But I share this with you because I was deeply intrigued by how he arrived at the decision to do this. He arrived at the decision on a Wednesday evening after arriving home from work rather late. And he offered what he described as a perfunctory hello to his wife and his son, and then he headed straight into his study where he spent the next 90 minutes responding to work-related emails that he acknowledges could have waited until the morning, but he wanted to free up some scheduled bandwidth for the next day. And as I closed my computer, he said, and looked at the clock, that's when it hit me. I've allowed myself to become hungry for the wrong things. I'm hungrier for productivity, as important as that is, I'm hungrier for productivity than I am for a deeper relationship with my family. I've allowed myself to become hungry for the wrong things. Turn that stone into a loaf of bread. Jesus, make it about your appetite. And what does Jesus do in the face of that temptation? Well, truth be told, he doesn't do anything. He stands there. And in his standing there, his standing becomes a prophetic no 
to that temptation to reduce the kingdom of God to the satisfaction of a variety of appetites. And the next temptation takes things into more complex territory. The next temptation is to reduce the kingdom of God to what I might describe as a narcissistic self-focus. So that life becomes little more than an extended effort to cater to individual preferences and agendas. Throw yourself off of a high place, Jesus. The food thing wasn't working out for you? Try this. Let's go for spectacle. Throw yourself off of a high place. Force the angels to come and save you because they promised they would. Force the angels to do what you want them to do. Make it about your agenda. If it's not going to be about your appetite, make it about your preferences. And Jesus' response, no. For we are not to put the Lord our God to the test, which is to say, sometimes faithfulness to God will demand saying no, and this is hard, but Lent is hard. Sometimes faithfulness to God will mean saying no to individual preferences and agendas in order to become more available to the often countercultural priorities of God. A little bit of personal background. The last church that I had the opportunity to serve as a senior pastor was a great church in western Pennsylvania. Uh, it had three campuses, and they held five worship services on the weekend. And so the expectation, at least at one time in that church's life, was that the senior pastor would preach at all five of those worship services. So for the years that I was there, I preached twice on Saturday evening and three times on Sunday morning. And somebody asked me here recently, you know, what's it like to preach twice uh, on Sunday morning here at Christ Church? And I jokingly said, well, based upon my experience, when I finish this second sermon on Sunday morning, I feel like I'm just getting warmed up. I have to go home and preach this sermon three more times to Tara just to get it out of my system. That's part of the joy of being married to me. Um, but what was so interesting about that church was that all five of the worship services were different liturgically and musically. So on Saturday evening, one of the services included a really good country band. And the liturgy was informal and conversational and interactive. Then on Sunday morning, one of those services advertised itself as a modern service. And there was a full praise band on the platform that rocked the house often. And then I'd make my way down to the downtown campus. And that was where a more traditional liturgy would be found. And there was a choir and there was the church's hymnody. And there were the musical sensibilities of the classical and Renaissance and Baroque eras of music history. And every weekend it was this uh, relentlessly compelling experience for me as a preacher, largely because of the liturgical gear shifting that was demanded at every turn. But the reason I'm sharing all of this with you is that at some point in my first year in that church, it became clear to me that there was a member who would make it a point to experience all five of those worship services. She wouldn't do it every weekend, but every month she would experience in some way, shape, or form worship at all five of those settings so that she would not be limiting herself to one service of worship. And when I felt like I knew her well enough to ask the question, I said to her, can you help me to understand? I sense that you've made this a priority. Why? 
why do you make this a priority to go to these different worship services? And she thought for a moment, and her response, I thought, was astonishing. I guess I do it, she said, to help, my, to help remind myself that worshiping God is not about getting what I want out of the worship service. And I wasn't certain of exactly what she was describing, and so she went into some detail. Well, think about it this way, she said, I'm, I don't really like country music all that much, but I love worshiping at that Saturday night service because those folks who are worshiping there faithfully are part of my church, and if I'm going to be church with them, then I need to be worshiping God with them. I need to be singing that music. And as long as I'm talking about it, she said, that modern service on Sunday morning, man, that music is just way too loud, and I don't like all the sappy love songs to Jesus, and I don't, I don't, I don't like that they don't pray the Lord's Prayer in that service. But I love worshiping there. I love it because those folks are part of my church, and if I'm going to be church with them, then I need to be praising God with them. Their language needs to become my language. And then she said, if you really want me to get honest, I'm not even all that crazy about all the hymns that they sing at that downtown service. There's a whole lot of blood of Jesus stuff in those hymns that I've never quite understood. But I love worshiping there, she said because those folks are my folks. Those, that's my church, and if I'm going to be church with them, I need to be worshiping in that setting. And then I remember that she paused in the conversation and looked, squarely, looked me squarely in the eye and said this. I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that I want worship to be about God's stuff, not mine. Throw yourself off of a high place. You do you, Jesus, and please make it all about you. Your agenda, your preferences, that's what needs to matter most. You're the Son of God, make it so. And what does Jesus do in the face of that temptation? He doesn't really do anything, he stands there. And his standing there becomes this prophetic no against this stark temptation to reduce the kingdom of God to personal preferences, personal agendas. And it's only then that the door is open to the third and perhaps most tempting temptation of all. The temptation to reduce the kingdom of God to worldly politics. All this can be yours, Jesus, take a look. I will give to you the kingdoms of the world and their power their methodologies, their strategies. The temptation is to reduce the kingdom to little more than a partnership with the methodologies and the platforms and the political hierarchies that our world so often values. And what does Jesus say? No. No. I will worship only God, and I will not worship the world's way of engaging in politics, which is to say that sometimes, sometimes, a faithfulness to God demands saying no to the world's ideas of power and politics so that we might cultivate instead what might be described as a Jesus-shaped heart.
It was uh, 1988, just before the presidential election. And I was a first-year seminarian, 22 years of age, not quite certain of what I was into with all of this theological education. And one of my professors in seminary was a man by the name of Stanley Hauerwas, brilliant theologian, Christian ethicist, who always had this way of reminding his students that the gospel is something bigger than they thought it was. And I remember at one point before the 1988 presidential election, Dr. Hauerwas made these comments in class. I wrote them down in my seminary notebook. With all due respect to the democratic processes and with gratitude for the place that it occupies in our system of government, the problem with political elections is that they often seduce Christians into reducing the lordship of Jesus to an anemic dogma that depends far too much upon the victory or the defeat of a candidate or platform. As important as they are, and as seriously as they should be approached, political elections tempt Christians to forget that the Lordship of Jesus is a political alternative to the world's way of doing things. After all, we did not elect Jesus as Lord. Rather, he elected us. And I can't even tell you why, but those words back in 1988, as a 22-year-old who was trying to make sense of the world, politically and otherwise, those words spoke to my heart. Here's the interesting thing. Just a few months ago in November of 2022, before the November election, when Dr. Oz and John Fetterman were duking it out politically in my home state of Pennsylvania, I found this seminary notebook because we had begun the process of packing up the house. I found this old seminary notebook, opened and searched and found these words just so that I could read them again. And as they were comforting to me in uh, 1988, they were comforting to me in 2022. And on the night before the election in November, I remember crying out to God something like this because I was deeply concerned about my home state. And I remember crying out something like this, God, help me to cast my vote tomorrow with integrity and remove any obstacle that would, that would prevent other people from doing the same. But God, most of all, most of all, please bring to my heart over and over and over again the truth that irrespective of what transpires in tomorrow's election, the priorities of your politics, the politics of your kingdom, will remain unassailed. And then the quote from Hauerwas came back into my thoughts. We did not elect Jesus as Lord. He elected us. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus, all of their power, all of their methodology. All you have to do is prioritize me. All you have to do is worship me. And what does Jesus do? He stands there. He stands there. And in standing there, he offers a prophetic no to the temptation to reduce the kingdom of God to something less than it really is. Do you see why I say that Jesus' encounter with the devil in the wilderness matters? In so many ways, it sets the stage for the rest of Jesus' ministry, certainly his journey to the cross. Jesus doesn't simply do something in the wilderness. He stands there. He stands there for you. He stands there for me. He stands there for the world that he came to save. And in standing there, he reveals to all of us that while the things that tempt us are daunting and real, they are not greater 
are not greater than the one we follow. And for that, I simply say, thanks be to God. Amen.